to the Aligned Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. This is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's conversation is with someone who I respect and appreciate and have been following for quite a long time. His name is Dr. Adrian Lowe. Dr. Adrian Lowe has earned his undergraduate master's degree and PhD in physiotherapy from the University of Stellenbosch in Cape Town. I think that's how you say that, Stellenbosch? I think that's how you say it. Uh, South Africa. He is an adjunct faculty member at St. Ambrose University and University of Las Vegas and director of the Therapeutic Neuroscience Research Group studying pain neuroscience. He's taught at innumerable conferences around the world for the last 30 years. He's authored over 100 peer-reviewed articles. His PhD focused on pain neuroscience education. He's also senior faculty in pain science or and pain science director and vice president of faculty experience for evidence in motion. He is pretty much the man in the world of the neuroscience around pain. We've also had Lorimer Mosley on here as well. They are colleagues and friends and uh, we've discussed both of them in each individual conversation to each other. I don't know if that makes sense exactly. They talk about each other in each individual podcast. Anyways, they mutually respect and appreciate each other. And I'm so grateful to get to share the greatest minds on the planet around detecting or uncovering what the meaning of pain is, uh, the neuroscience around pain, the psychosomatic components to pain. And it's just an, I, it's a question that I'm endlessly fascinated with. And I'm so immensely grateful to get to share uh, some moments with the world's leading research researchers on the, the topic. So that's what this conversation is about, trying to uncover what the heck pain is and how do we manage it? How do we gain a relationship to it? How do we resolve it? And that's it. I want to thank you guys for leaving us reviews wherever you're listening to this. Thank you for subscribing as well. Read one from, I'm sure pick a random one. Uh, this comes from CGO-745 stars. Sapio eroticism at its finest. Your body will tremble. You hear Aaron say words like vulnerability. That's also a component to pain. It's not just something that happens to us. It's our reaction and the way that we manage the happenings in our lives. That's like basic stoicism. Marcus Aurelius and the, and the boys discuss things of the sort, uh, suggesting we can't control the happenings in our lives, but we do have the ability to manage the way that we process them. And that is a large part of what this conversation is about. So let's get to it with one of the world's preeminent experts on the neuroscience of pain and someone that I greatly value, respect, and appreciate, Dr. Adrian Lowe. Something I like to start off with people uh, in general is from my perception, I feel like there's a lot of low hanging fruit in the modern world that uh, from a health perspective, or in your case, perhaps from a pain science perspective that if people just started engaging with this activity or this mindset or they just started implementing this thing in their daily life that's so obvious and so clear you see it so clearly but you feel like people are kind of you know maybe not engaging with that is there anything that comes to mind that if we just started doing this thing these couple of few things it would make a big difference it would be a long lever it would lead to great gain without much in investment 
Does that, does that make sense, that, that question? Yeah, I, I'm just, for me, I don't know if it's doing as much as knowing and thinking. I mean, we, we, we our whole business is about reconceptualizing how people think about pain. And um, if people can just understand that pain is not, uh, pain is a normal human experience and without it, you, you wouldn't be here. Uh, we always see pain as an enemy, right? Pain means something's bad. Um, pain is there to protect us, no doubt. But um, I, I think, I mean, we right now are building a major, we, we've got nine states that we teach middle school kids about pain. And if I can get those little kids just to go, you know, pain is pain's okay. The guy with a funny accent explained it. I'm going to be okay. And don't freak out about it. Then time is ready for me to go to, you know, Shady Acres. I've done my job. And if we can get those kids to get it, Aaron, it, it'll change the world. There's no doubt in my mind. I'd love to use this opportunity with you to do several things, one of which I think it would be interesting to paint a picture of what is pain, and perhaps we could put it into, probably from your perception, lots of buckets, but at least the, the two baseline buckets of acute pain, I stepped on a nail, and you know, mapping out like what is that from reaction up through spinal cord up through hypothalamus or dorsal horn or whatever the heck the terms are that I you know I don't know what the hell I'm talking about but I'm very I'm very curious to understand <clears throat> and then the other bucket and I'd be open to other buckets beyond this as well would be the, the that persistent pain where I don't really know why it's there but it just seems like it's a part of my life and you know I, I could do without it so could we maybe start with like what what is what is acute pain in the body how do we describe that I mean, acute pain is a normal response to typically an injury or an accident. It happens in a short amount of time. It's a protection. Um, it's, it's vital to survival. When you have an acute injury, you sprain your ankle, you step in a nail, there's got to be a warning system to tell you, hey, you need to take care of this problem. And so we activate nociceptors or receptors that basically fire a message into our spinal cord, into our brain that tells us, hey, there's a problem. And the, the quickest way that the, the brain and the body can get your attention is to turn on this thing we call pain. And so pain is there to protect us. Um, it has a very useful um, job at this point. It's there to tell us, pay attention, there's a problem, pull the nail out, get a tetanus shot, put a bandage around it. And by the way, learn something from it. We walk around nails with shoes on. And so, so pain's not a bad thing. It's in the acute phases, it serves a beautiful purpose. You do not run the, the Austin half marathon two days post knee replacement. It's there to teach you, we're going to skip this year. We're going to try next year again. Um, the beautiful model. I mean, you know, Aaron, this, this, the flip side of it is people that cannot process pain, they're very rare. There is a genetic condition that has that. Um, they don't live very long. And so people need to understand pain is a normal thing. It's okay. It's there to protect us for a certain amount of time. But then it should be going away, right? You step in a nail, take care of the problem, it eases off, and here we are. We're good. Um, that's that's probably the easiest way to put it. I feel like um, the questions I'm about to ask could could lead us into like metaphysical circular weeds. Um, but I, I'd be I'd be curious to define where is pain located. Do you need a brain for pain? Is there some way to perceive pain without the brain? Is there physic exclusively physical pain? Yeah, yeah. That last question is a loaded one, but the easy answer is physically um, no brain, no pain. You can have an injury and no pain. I mean, you have gone to, in the morning to get a cup of coffee or you know, something to drink. You notice a bruise in your body, so you had an injury, but no pain. Otherwise, you would remember the day, the date, the time that you hurt your leg. It's not uncommon to feel, to see blood on your leg or seeing a, a, a bruise. Injury and pain is not the same thing. 
what if you really want to answer the question what the really super super smart people are telling us is that pain is a conscious construct of the brain you need to be consciously aware so let me flip it the other way around if you can alter consciousness you can alter pain and we see it with anesthesia with hypnosis and those kinds of things now the question you're going to ask me is obviously what is consciousness and i'm going to tell you that there my pay scale will never reach the level of being able to answer. We don't know that. We just you know it is subconscious, unconscious, etc. But it is a conscious construct of the brain is the way we see it in neuroscience. It's it's when the brain puts value to it and starts paying attention to it, if, if I could put it that way. Um, but you cannot have pain and not know about it. You can have an injury and not be aware of it. Um, you and I could be sitting here today in this podcast and I could have a really nasty blow back on a scan, but I'm not aware of it. My my system has decided, yeah, we're good. Edwin's on a podcast. Let's not bug this, the brain about it. But you cannot have pain and not know about it. Pain needs consciousness to be part of the realm. So, and then what? <laughs> and what about this? The subjective. <clears throat> In advance, I appreciate you answering all these very like like elementary questions. No, no. <laughs> uh, but but what about the subjective experience of pain? Obviously, I'm never gonna have the exact i'm never going to know what it's like for you to eat an avocado you know so so when you and and so then within that then there's been tons of research that you've probably actually conducted or at least been a part of uh measuring the the different scales of subjective pain based off of level of i don't know nervous system excitement maybe you could say or perception of what's happening yeah well first of all yeah every human being's pain experience is completely unique to them Bar none. There is no person that experiences the exact same pain as somebody else. And remember, this pain experience, though, Aaron, is, is not just this nociceptive information receptor sending a certain threshold and say, hey, you got to get pain. It's very powerfully linked to everything you believe, your upbringing. How did you experience pain when you were a child? Um, by the way, it's tied to your culture, to way what your zip code is. There are so many um, different variables to it. Um, I think one of the biggest problems with pain, unfortunately, is we tend to judge people based on what's normal for us. I grew up a certain way, had certain experiences that makes pain a certain threshold for me. You walk into the clinic or in the research lab and you express it different, doesn't make it wrong. It doesn't make it right. It just makes it different. And so we tend to judge real quick. Um, some cultures are very stoic when it comes to pain and other cultures are more expressive. It doesn't make it wrong. It just makes it different. You know, in, in my world, I'm like brain scans and stuff around me and the research we're doing. I don't own a painometer. You cannot walk in my clinic today and on a scale of 10, tell me it's seven and I buzz your back and go, it's only five. You're lying to me. Um, pain is a subjective expression of how this experience is affecting my life. And how dare I, as a provider or any person, a family member, a friend, a colleague, judge you on that? How, how do I know that? I would never know. That's what makes it so hard, right? To treat pain, if you will. Yeah. I, I feel like this is eventually, you know, this is where it starts to go into the weeds. But I think it's interesting weeds <clears throat> is I wonder if there's some type of cultural preset that would be the most adaptive or supportive for a person having a, a healthy in quotations, relationship to pain. And the reason I say that is there's some people people that you may have been exposed to. I've been exposed to a lot of them because I grew up, I, I may, I've been, I've lived in a lot of like new age meccas. I lived in LA, I lived in Hawaii, I lived in Boulder, Colorado. And within that, there's this ongoing kind of like repetition of doing the work, you know? And, and, and I think that you can place yourself into a mindset where you're just, you're just in the place if you're always just digging up the muck. You're never not digging up the muck within yourself. 
And you can go your whole life just finding out, well, it's this, this muck is endless. And then there's the other side of the spectrum where you could be a person where they're completely numb and they're more stoic and maybe they, they grew up in Armenia or something, you know, and they can just, they can bear a lot, you know, but there's a lot of untapped emotion and sensation within. And I feel like there's not, nothing, I don't know, I've never been, never been to Armenia, um, but I feel like there's some in-between space there that would perhaps lead to the most, I don't know, adaptive relationship to sensation, I guess, for lack of, lack of better words. Is there some type of... Do you know what I'm saying? Is that is there any sense to that? I, I know exactly what you're saying. The, the problem is just it's not that easy. It's a it's a very strong interplay between genetics, cultural upbringing, previous experiences, coping skills, um, all those things. I, I you know if I can go another way, Aaron. If I flip it the other way around, you know I I get, I get two kids. If I could, of all the research I've looked at, if I can extract one thing to give my kids to for lack of a better term, immunize them, which you shouldn't, right? Pain is normal. We should be there to protect us. Um, I think all the data would point to things like coping strategies. Um, we all experience pain. It's a normal human experience. I cannot prevent pain. I, I hate it when I sit on a scientific panel and say, our next speaker is going to talk about how to prevent back pain. You cannot prevent back pain. Back pain is a normal human thing. What you do about it is very, very important. And that's where the, that's the squeeze. That's, that's the important part. Some people hurt their back and they go in a life of pain. Another group of people hurt their back and go, I'm good. You know, a couple of stretches. I lay low, you know, I'll do a few, um, you know, um, stretches. A therapist showed me. I'll do a little bit of yoga and life is good. And they move on. And it's self-efficacy. It's coping skills. There's, there's something. And it's, it's, it's a combination of so many factors, including upbringing culture. Yes. Um, it's very different. You sprain your ankle in, in, in Beverly Hills versus spraining your ankle in a war-torn area in Syria right now, um, it means two different things in two different areas with environment, culture. It, it's, it's a very complex human experience. Yeah. What about, so, where does pain live? What's the best shot we have in, in like anatomical language at, at isolating the existence of pain within the brain? Would, is there some structures that are, are more prevalent in the conversation at least? I mean, we can now take human beings and scan their brain when it comes to pain. And I just want people to understand that, you know, when these brain scans, we're inferring a lot. We are guessing a lot uh, because it's really, when we scan you, a certain area of the brain will get busier. There's more oxygen, more glucose in the area and the scanner will pick that up. Um, but we don't know if that area is suppressed or elevated. It gets a little more trickier. I just want to make sure I put that out there. Um, we do know that there is a common pattern or a common mapping that occurs in all human beings. So if I had 10 errands standing in front of me and error number one is back pain, error number two is headaches, number three is an ACL injury, put them all together, there are commonalities, yes. And we tend to find that when the emotional areas like the amygdala gets involved, it gets trickier. Um, hippocampus with memory and all those. But I, I would just I just want to caution us because medicine did this for the last 300 years to find that one little area can go cut out tomorrow because I'm an American and we got to fix it tomorrow and while you're at it, supersize it. Um, it doesn't work that way. This is an experience. It's not an anatomical fault. It's not that some people, their amygdala is wrong, so we cut it out or we inflate it or whatever. It's, an, it's still a human experience. And so I, I'm just, I'm always worried about those areas. But yes, if people wanted to know where they should look, but we do know this. Let me, let me tell you this. If I punch in the arm right now, those areas in your brain will all work together. But if your pain persists over time, more of the attention shifts to your limbic system, your emotional areas of your brain. 
And so that seems to be a big target of our research is to aim towards the emotional areas of the brain, including the, the amygdala as an example. So interesting. And then how does pain start to, so how does acute pain, which seems very adaptive, supportive, if you're born with, is it, I think it's called congenital analgesia, I think is a term for it, where you're born, you, just, you don't have, you don't feel sensation. It's actually like an incredibly dangerous situation and you're not going to be long lived in that. So it's coming into a relationship like, oh, pain, like amazing. Um, what is the timeline or narrative or story or transition from what was once acute supportive adaptive, still probably supportive adaptive, but now into this kind of murky nebulous chronic state? Well, I'm glad you brought the word time in because the research is shifting up until probably about a year and a half ago, Aaron, I would tell you if pain lasts from the day you sprain your ankle to a certain period of time, we will classify you as acute. And if you wake up the next morning, you move into the subacute and then later chronic phase. It's a timeline. By the way, the timeline is different in America than in Europe. In Europe, the timeline is three months. In America, it tends to be six months, which is that in itself is just intriguing. Um, chronic pain is really probably pain that is beyond the normal phase, uh, adaptive phase of having a biological need to protect you. Um, now your system is adapting accordingly. So basically, it's pain that lasts a little bit longer. Um, it serves. It, it, it is now actually. Um, it did not go away. It did not ease as we expected. And now it's. Per, it, it's that's why we like to term persistent pain because persistent just means it's ongoing pain. And and to answer your question real quick, it's a little trickier than time. For example, we now know if ten people today are in a motor vehicle collision, there's a small group of them that may already be set up for persistent pain within a couple of days. It's not a timeline thing that, you know, um, it plays a role, but it's 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 a little trickier than that. Chronic pain is where your nervous system, your being your your whole nervous system, 45 miles of it, your spinal cord, your brain now starts getting more um, upregulated, sensitized, and become more hypervigilant to normal things. And that's where the pain system shifts, if you will, to people that it, it becomes a little bit more yucky over time. There was an interesting, I, I was recently listening to, I don't know where I got this from, but story of a fella, some construction worker, you probably know the specific details of this. I think it was like, the, I don't know, it was a while ago, I mean, decades ago, stepped on a, a nail, went through his boot. Do you know the story I'm talking about? Yeah. So he stepped on a nail. Yes. Yeah. Stepped on a nail. So now I'm going to butcher the story that you can come back and actually describe how, how it really happened. But generally, long story short. Stepped in the nail, went through his boot, agonizing pain, wigging out. They move it at all, just like, ugh, like, like the worst pain ever. And then goes to the hospital. Finally, they slowly extract the nail and the boot, and they get ready to, you know, proceed with their procedures. Nail never touches foot. Went through the boot. Went through. So he had the perception of this experience, and his pain was real. But the objective reality of the action was different than his perception. That's so interesting. <laughs> I feel like that's like a foundation for the whole conversation in a way. Yes, but this is it. I mean, Aaron, for too long, we've tied tissue health to pain. If you have bad tissues, you hurt. And if you have healthy tissues, you cannot hurt. And that's total nonsense. This is a beautiful story. Um, that they published years ago, but the story idea that he, from the visual perception that he's getting, the brain constructed its own reality. The reality for his brain is that nail went through my foot, there's tissue damage, and um, now when he touched it, it's irritating, and so it causes the most horrific pain. 
But the reality is a nail was stuck between two toes. So pain is a perception of the brain based on perception of threat. When the brain perceives a threat, it will protect you vehemently. And the scary thing is in some people, light movements or barely touching their skin is perceived as a threat based on things that have happened to them during their course of an injury, an accident, surgery, or life experiences. But um, the brain is by far the key. If the brain perceives there's a problem, it'll protect you. And the most valuable thing you can do is turn on pain. So what are your thoughts on, I, I, I've heard you describe maybe like three steps or three pillars to, to gaining a relationship with sensation, i.e. like relieving pain. Uh, and one of the, the factors that you've described in the past, maybe they've changed for this point, but one of them is, is education. So educating, educating a person of like, okay, this is, this is normal. This is okay. This is, you know, you know however, whatever, i be curious your language for presenting education. Uh, and, and then where the, where the question goes, I, th I think I've heard you kind of poo-poo a little bit on not specifically John Sarno and mind over back pain, but the general concepts around that. It seemed like there was some poo-poo on the idea that you could like talk someone through or educate someone through pain to dissolve pain in an instant. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'll have to go back and find out where that, that would come from because um, I mean, just simply said it, I mean, our research work is something referred to as pain neuroscience education. That is taking a human being that is struggling with pain and explaining to him biologically how pain works. And when they understand what's happening to them, the fact that injury and pain is not the same thing, the fact that a part of your pain experience is where this nervous system, or we call it the alarm system, is becoming increasingly sensitized. And so when you are trying to do an activity, walk, run, do whatever task you do, the sensitive alarm system is one of the barriers that you're struggling with. And what our research has now shown via just tons of research we've done is when a human being sits in front of us and they learn more about their pain, how their pain works, their life is better for it. And including, by the way, Aaron, their pain goes down. So I'm not poo-pooing any idea of education. But the critical thing is education by itself doesn't change behavior. Um, we as Americans spend 2.1 trillion dollars a year telling people smoking cause cancer and only one in five people go yeah you should probably stop smoking what what i am concerned about is people think you can just talk pain out of people it's not that simple um i've been doing this for 30 years of the smartest people on the planet i maybe have had five people in our clinic that had, after teaching them go oh my gosh i got it and they bet no you what what are you doing you're changing their fear and catastrophization, meaning they're not that afraid to move. And then they start moving. And what made them better is actually movement. Um, we know that movement is by far the biggest painkiller on the planet, by, by, by far. But people in pain won't move. Why? They're afraid. They're nervous. They're going to make something worse. And when you explain to them that feeling your arm, feeling your leg is normal, it's part of this pain experience, it de-threatens it and they move. And so, so I just want to make sure I'm not poo-pooing anybody. Uh, Dr. Sarno has done amazing work and is a very well-respected gentleman. Has done an amazing amount of work. You were poo-pooing um, Sarno. Think, you never said anything, John Sarno. Okay. I, and I think I'm probably putting, uh, I'm probably misremembering or something I listened to like a week ago. And and but it, it was something along the lines of it. I think kind of like what you're saying. It's like you also. It's like education. Yes, and is I think kind of more, more where you're going with it. I can tell you straight up. It's easy. You cannot explain pain out of a person. I've tried. Okay, it doesn't work. You can teach people about pain so they become less afraid of it, and then they start moving, engaging in daily activities, getting back to their life, and that is what makes them better. And so um, education is important. 
Um, there are millions of people that go to movement-based professionals every day, PT, chiropractors, athletic trainers, personal trainers, yoga masters, you name them, but they won't recover fully because they're so afraid to move or to commit to that next level of movement, that next level of movement, because they're so afraid of their pain. All we've done is we've just taught people more about pain so they go, I got it. I understand it. I don't have to be afraid of it. So when I do go see my yoga master, my Pilates instructor, my physical therapist, my occupational therapist, whatever it may be, I'm ready to engage. And that's what gets them further along that path. Um, that's, I think, what paraphrasing probably more of what I was trying to get to with people. But if I could just talk pain out of you, it'd be very simple, right? Yeah, I feel like I'm totally misrepresenting what you and it totally like shifted in my mind of what you said. But um, so for a, say, from like a, a, a clinician's perspective or just a you know a, a mother's perspective or a friend's perspective if there were some foundational bullet points to share to support someone's relationship with the sensation that they're experiencing to create a foundation for understanding and education what would some of those foundational bullet points to share be from your perspective i mean the most common thing when patients come in you know we, we explain to them first of all i mean we validate so let, let's use an example a mom walks in a clinic today with her with her high school volleyball player kid that just sprained her ankle. I would validate this kid and say, you sprained your ankle, tissues do get injured, there's a little bit of irritation, and that's why your ankle is painful. And we gotta get some better, we gotta get you moving. But at the same time, the nerves around that area that works like an alarm system has ramped up and said, you know, ding ding ding, go get go see Adrian. And when we do therapy, we need to get your ankle better and healthier, but also calm your nervous system down, this alarm system. So now we start in including things like you're sore but safe. So when that girl does some exercise in the clinic and she walks on her ankle that afternoon, are you sore? Yes, but you're safe. Hurt doesn't equal harm. Just because you feel your ankle doesn't mean there's something invariably wrong with it. It's still sensitive. The, the alarm system, if you will, has to calm down. So it's a deal model. And by the way, for the calming of the alarm system, it opens up avenues for things like sleep and nutrition and exercise, mindfulness, relaxation, which is where we should be going with some of this stuff. But um, if I can get people just to understand sore but you're sore but safe, hurt does not equal harm, um, pain that is understood is not to be feared. If you understand your pain and go, I got it. Yeah, I'm sore today, but, you know, the guy with a funny accent explained, I'm going to be okay. I am, you know, you can move accordingly. Um, that's that's where we go with a lot of the analogies with our patients. Yeah, it seems like being like safety and, and having the illusion of control is is really important. Because ultimately, you know, we're, we're illusion of control, I say, because we're being flung through this place we called space at 22,000 miles an hour, you know, whatever. We're just like, how much control do we really have? You know, but so so it's the illusion of control that I think it, it seems like that that presents a, a big shift. Yeah, it's funny because the top behavioral psychologists in the world would tell us patients in pain are not afraid. They just lack safety, which is not the exact same thing. But it is if you can give somebody safety, you're safe to move. You're safe to move a little more. You're safe to move today. And when you come back tomorrow, we're going to move a little bit more. Safety is important for us because as long as we're not safe, the brain has 86 billion neurons and they're sitting there talking to each other and they have to analyze, am I safe? If I'm safe, I can turn the, the alarm system down. If I'm not safe, we're going to ramp this sucker up and we're going to make your life miserable until we get safe. And so I love your analogy. Absolutely. Um, safety is a very cool thing in any healthcare provider, a parent, creating some safety for my child and a, a trainer that getting somebody, you know, it's safe to move up to this point and then just stop there. You're good for today, good for tomorrow. 
and those things. So I love your analogy, yes. And so then I'd love to get into one thing that I think is interesting as a concept is, is the pain gate theory and how we can kind of, and, and maybe that's just nonsense for even suggesting. So I'd love to hear your perception on that. Uh, and the reason I suggest that is to come into the next, what I'm deeming to be a pillar or, or step would be the, the movement conversation. I hear you, I see you squinting your eyes. You're like, oh no, pillar steps. I hate all this language. Um, but so movement, why is movement relevant and what is pain gate theory and is pain gate theory, uh, malarkey from your perspective based off of your reaction? No, I mean, in 1965, Melzack and Wall gave us gate control. It was one of the most fundamental shifts in our understanding of pain. But you need to understand today that we are now, what, uh, 50 plus years beyond that, 57 years later. And if you're sitting in 2022 and we're thinking that's still the pinnacle of treating people in pain, then, then we should not be here today. Gate control has its time and its place, but it's a very peripherally based model. Um, if you're, if I'm going to take your question and flip it the other way around, um, the the, the most incredible things we're seeing related to movement and pain, Aaron, is not gait control related. It is endogenous mechanisms related. Um, your brain that starts turning on its own chemistry. Our brains produces opioids 50 times more powerful than what you can inject in a human body. Um, this is the most powerful drug cabinet on the planet sits in you, between your ears, and it's all naturally occurring. And one of the best ways to turn it on is movement. I'll give you an example. A six-mile run produces 10 milligrams of morphine in your brain. If you break your arm today and go to the ER, they're going to give you a couple of milligrams of morphine to set your arm and put it in a cast. You can get two or three times that running six miles. Now, we cannot take somebody with chronic pain to go run six miles, but we start small and we build over time. I mean, but the, but the effectiveness of movement and pain is not stimulating some fibers that's closing a gate. It, 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 that is so 1965. Um, the 22, 2022 answer is the, it turns on your brain, it turns on the chemicals, endorphins and kefalin, serotonin, the happy juices, and just says, you know what, we're good, we're going to calm this system and move. Um, that's where the excitement comes from with oxygen, blood flow, that's way more physiological than just receptors that are overstimulating. My perception of pain theory would be something more like what that it would be more acute related pain. So you you do stub your toe and you like go ah, 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 and you like run. That that's what pain gate theory is. Is that is that correct? It's a piece of it, absolutely right. And gate control is very similar. I mean, the easiest way for gate control is you you bang your elbow against the coffee table and you rub the area. You're now stimulating different fibers that is overriding, if you will, the um, the signals that are associated with banging your elbow. And so rubbing an area, walking it off, the, off those kind of things. But the interesting thing is all these things, rubbing the arm, walk it off, you know, kind of get going, also enhances the endogenous systems that are so more powerful than a simple receptor. So if you really want to do gate control today, gate control does not explain pain in phantom limb pain because there's no foot, there's no leg. It doesn't explain pain in quadriplegics or in – and we dare we even go to emotional pain or – um, you know, abuse, trauma, those kind of things. So it's, it's way more complicated. And by the way, um, Rodney Melzack, who passed away recently, was one of the founders who made that model. In 1999, wrote a paper that basically said, for the love of God, move on. This thing is old. It's 1965. We, and he came up with these new theories. So I'm not disparaging towards Patrick Wall and Ron Melzack. These are, these are some of our highest regarded people in our field, but um, it's way cooler than that. How about that? It's just way cooler than just... So what I'm what I'm getting from that is it seems like with the <clears throat> gate theory stuff is a re a reduction 
of something something that is happening, but an incomplete story. It's just a piece of it. And and I would just encourage people that if that's the only way they want to look at pain, go for it. But you just you're you're 57 years behind us. So, <laughs> um, so, 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 so wait a minute, Aaron, in, in physical therapy school, as an example, we still teach kids. Um, students to put on, you know, a TENS unit on electrical stimulation that also stimulate fibers. And will it help people? Yes, it will. But it's a piece of the puzzle. It's not the puzzle. The puzzle is way better and cooler that we can now tell the story um, way more advanced, if you will, than just simple fibers. And, and there's a big, strong belief about this. I'm not disparaging that model. It was revolutionary in 1965. So it seems like there's like a pharmacological, like an endogenous pharmacological model that's missing in the, in the gate, the, the gate theory perspective. Is that, I'm, I, and by the, by, by the way, I'm, I have no idea what I'm talking about. And I'm just, I'm just like curious. And so anytime I say something that's absolutely just outlandish, uh, you just like, not here, like, no, 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 Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. And, and I'm, I'm okay. I mean, as, as many of your listeners would listen today, they're probably very familiar with gate control. They should be, but it's a very reductionist, peripheralistic way of looking at pain. Pain is way more complex than that. And we have way cooler tools to address it from the central mechanisms. Um, how about this? It's, you know, there's a, there's a beautiful um, idea of bottom up and top down. And what I mean by that is if you have a painful shoulder, let's do stuff from your shoulder in. And that is, includes gate control. Let's get that area moving better, blood flow, oxygen, and also calm the system, but then also centrally, taking away fear, anxiety, catastrophization. So it's, it's a little bit of both. I, I don't want to negate peripheral factors in pain. They're very powerful, um, but they may not be as powerful as we, as we said way back in the 60s, 70s, maybe even 80s and 90s. Um, that's all I'm saying. So um, I'm going to have to be one of those scientists that say, you know what, gate control is awesome. I will still teach people about it, but if you only believe that, then I'm going to have to leave you behind because the world is way cooler on this side. I want to take a moment and share something that is an absolute needle mover for sleep that is supplementing with magnesium. The reason magnesium is relevant to supplement with in the first place is because it is largely deficient in modern day soil. My go-to choice for magnesium is from Bioptimizers. The reason I like this stuff so much is it contains all seven different forms of magnesium. Uh, it's sourced incredibly well. I know the founders of the company personally. I trust them. I think they're fantastic. I think they really give a dang, and I think this stuff is important for you to try. If you're interested in getting yourself a 10% discount, you can go to magbreakthrough.com slash align podcast. That's M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H.com slash align podcasts. You could use code align10 to boost your intake of magnesium and start feeling better today, start sleeping better, start relaxing and restoring and repairing those muscles of yours. I think you guys are gonna dig this stuff. Magbreakthrough.com slash align podcast, 10% off. Wanted to share something that has been one of the most important health inducing practices that I engage with that is cold plunging. One of the issues with cold plunges is often they are ridiculously expensive. I think it's worth it because uh, as far as a, a practice that you can be engaging with each day, getting the cold, it's going to boost your mood. It's going to boost your energy levels. It's going to decrease inflammation levels in your body. Um, it's going to be helpful with boosting metabolism just about 11 minutes of it per month is around like the baseline to be able to achieve that. 
And uh, the reason that I linked up with our sponsor of the day, the Ice Barrel, is because it is an affordable option that is also beautiful. It's sitting on my porch right now. It's a vertical barrel of sorts. It's quite large, actually. It's deceptively large how big a person you can fit in there. I'm like six, four and a half, and I fit in very comfortably. Um, but it doesn't take up a ton of space. Uh, so you also get yourself $125 off of the purchase by going over to icebarrel.com slash align. You'll get $125 off the purchase and it's already affordable, which is great. It's I-C-E-B-A-R-R-E-L.com slash align. I can't recommend cold plunging enough. I think the ice barrel is great. I hope you enjoy your $125 off icebarrel.com slash align. I know you've already talked about, it, but but can you kind of fill in the rest of the puzzle then? So if gate is just one of the reductionist perspectives on it, there's like the what I'm deeming the pharmacological aspect of like the the natural production of opiates and things of the sort. Uh, but again, like what's what's the rest of the puzzle? Well, the rest of the puzzle is basically so you're going to get information coming in from your tissues, right? Your tissues have sent receptors all over them. It will tell you it's too hot. You pinch something, you damage something. So there's information coming in. Let's call them danger receptors saying danger, danger, Aaron, there's something going on in your ankle. Your brain will then have a meeting. That information, by the way, comes into our spinal cord, up to our brain, to the thalamus, which works like a, a, a receptionist, if you will, that, that takes information and pulls a meeting. Your whole brain then gets together, takes a meeting, and then decides, is this is this a threat or not? And if it decides it's a threat, it'll dry up the happy chemicals in our system to make you more sensitive. And if this decides that it's not that big of a deal, we can be okay, it actually it lets these chemicals centrally come down, and ketones, endorphins, serotonins. There's various areas in the brain, like the periaproductal gray, that we can turn on with some of these treatments that will actually calm the system back down. Way more complex than that stuff, but, but yes, um, it ties very powerfully into those centrally acting um, opioids and ketones, endorphins, along with, you know, So the what's interesting there is something that a person could do would be maybe like hyperventilate themselves, do some type of pranayama, huffing and puffing, breathwork type practice, and that will desensitize them to doing something like a cold plunge. And a, a term that I've learned from that is stress-induced analgesia, which would be comparable to like you're in a fight and you don't feel anything. And so you're so stressed that you're actually surged with all of these, whatever, opiates, for lack of lack of understanding of what's actually going on from, for myself, I'd love for you to fill it in, where you don't feel the thing actually because you're so stressed. So where does that come in? That's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think we deal with a lot of different things. You're talking here about distraction in some way, shape, or form. If you're doing something else, your brain can only really focus on one day. The interesting thing is you cannot process more than one pain at a time. So if I were to have you pinch your face right now and at the same time bite your lip, your brain could not do both. Is that, ga is that gate theory? Between. That's not gate That's theory. That's not gate no, theory. That is not gate theory. It, 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 it'll, there, there will always be a gate element or a peripheral element. But it's the brain can literally, it has to switch between those two components. But that's one piece of it. Let, let's go to the other part of it, right? We work with, with soldiers that get, get in the combat zones and get shot. Um, but they are so aware of where they're at and survival mode that this injury that comes in, let's say somebody gets shot in an arm, information comes in the brain, gets information, hey, hey, something's going on here. But it's in a survival mode that it will actually shut that area down. And that's called inhibition. The brain is just turning on these incredible endorphins and just saying, shut it down. I got to deal with bigger things right now. There are bullets flying around me. I got to get out of this area. 
And then when they do come back out of those zones into the safe areas like the green zone and they sit down and notice, hey, it's wet, what, what happened here? I get shot. Right. We see it with, with injuries quite often. Those kind of, I mean, there's, you see on the, you know, on TV, the MMA fighter that at the end holds up his belt. I won, I won. And then, you know, one of his toes is facing 90 degrees in the wrong direction because he's so busy with those. And it's interesting. The brain can decide to pay attention or not. And a lot of this, by the way, Aaron, is driven by these chemicals where the brain can decide to, to shut an area down or to pay more attention to it. Um, but again, you know, as far as cutting the line between this is oh, this is gate, this is not gate, I'm not going to go there because we're one big biological system that does not work in pieces. We work beautifully together as a symphony. Um, all I wanted to make sure you and your audience understand is if you if you, if you had to invest somewhere, I would invest in the central nervous system with the chemicals because that's where the bang for the buck is, no doubt. Because if we can change those chemicals, that's where we can change the painful experience very easily. So how do we invest in the central nervous system and those chemicals? I, I mean, you're already explaining, but like, like what's the what's the takeaways with that? Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, we have, uh, my research team and I have looked at the last few years. There's about, in, in, in my profession, there's 22 different things that we do on a daily basis that turns those chemis, chemicals on, that, that, that empowers the pharmacy, right? And this is things like knowledge, things like movement, mindfulness, breathing, nutrition, sleep hygiene, um, mind. I mean, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. There's so many cool things that can get this brain turned on. Why do we give people with persistent pain antidepressants? Because they're depressed? No. Low-dose antidepressants turn that chemical on again, but it does it pharmacologically with side effects. We have just decided we're going to try and turn the brain on non-pharmacologically. And we have good research to prove it. I can show it to you in the brain scan studies and all the stuff we've done. But if you start getting people to understand what's going on, they got goals, they're not afraid of its safety, like you mentioned. And now they start moving. They sleep better. They eat better. They spend some time on, on purposeful mindfulness practice, um, goal setting, and, and, and these really amazing things that are non-pharmacological. The system can turn itself on. We just published a paper where a physician was able to taper people off opioids completely by turning their own natural system on. And that's what we're trying to do. And so what are cases of pain that have stumped you? Like, what's the hardest question for pain for you? How much time do you got? Um, I mean, every patient's unique. You said it in your first part of the interview today. Every patient walking in, it, I, I, there's, you, I mean, there's patterns we see, right? So patterns that we see you get comfortable but um let's let's face it there are some significantly serious pain conditions out there in my realm and again all apologies to anybody listening today that practice in just completely different settings or whatever um but things like complex regional pain syndrome um where you get just you get conditions like allodynia we get pain from things that shouldn't hurt light touch hurts thinking about movement hurts um so pain is a spectrum and we do see people on these end scales there, Aaron, and there's many of these patients that have to go to very advanced pain centers and very horrible pharmaceutical interventions and surgeries and drugs and those kind of things. And so, um, but their pain is a nasty thing. It, they, make no mistake about it. I don't want people to think this is just little ankle sprains here and there. Today, as you and I are sitting here, there are some people struggling significantly with pain today because they're on the end scale where their system is now so sensitive that anything related to movement, function, whatever, is a threat, and the brain is on full alert at this point. I'm recording with Larimer, 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 Mosley? Larimer, yeah. Larimer, Mosley coming up, and I, I heard you mention him. You guys work together, it seems, right? You're like, Yeah, I did. I worked with Larimer for about seven years or so. We do research in the same area. Um, super brilliant, smart. He's about 
You should ask him the consciousness question, by the way, because I think he can maybe answer it. Ask him what consciousness is. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, and just give me a phone call. I got your phone number. Call me. Let me know. Um, oh, no. Lorimer is, is a brilliantly smart um, guy. I mean, I've learned an enormous amount from him and still do. Um, so absolutely, I'm very excited for you to talk to him because he should. people should be listening to what he's and one of the, One of the things I heard you mentioning in relation to him was that, that he suggested that he's attempting – or interested in working on the hardest problems and working his way back from there, such as the, yes. the complex regional pain syndrome. And is fibromyalgia is that the same? Or are those those different categories? They different conditions. They are very different conditions, but still extremely challenging. Affects a lot of millions and millions of people are affected by it. The underlying mechanisms are very different, and their clinical presentations are very different. PRPS is more localized, for example, in a hand or a foot or a body part. Fibromyalgia is more of a widespread pain that is driven very extensively by things like the immune system, et cetera. But um, they're both very challenging and they both affect human beings immensely in their daily um, function. So what could we learn from an, an allodynia? And, and how do you define allodynia that exactly as well? Allodynia is just um, when you experience pain from something that shouldn't hurt, you know, I touch, um, thinking about movement, like the air conditioner hits my arm with cool air and it produces a pain response. That's allodynia. Thinking, reversing our perspective, going backwards from the complex regional pain syndromes and the fibromyalgias and the allodynias and the things that's like, oh, these are like really hard problems. Uh, what can we learn from those to uh, inform the, you know, the knee pain or the back pain from your perspective? Yeah, and, and so... So for those patients, um, first of all, we always thought of the education. We have now good studies to show if somebody walked in a clinic with CRPS, we explained to him or her what's biologically happening to the body. Why is light touch now painful? Why does the shirt hurt? And they understand that their threat level goes down. So they actually get better. Are they fixed? No, we're not even close there. But then we start doing other strategies. Now for CRPS, we use a very specific program called graded motor imagery, Aaron, where we actually target some of the mapping in the brain. Our our body parts are mapped in the brain in certain parts of it, and those maps get altered in pain experiences like CRPS. So we have a sequence of events where we can actually retrain those areas of the brain to help with pain. And so we can use things like virtual reality, mirror therapy, motor imagery, retraining left and right recognition. So it's just an advanced series of brain techniques to restructure how the brain sees those body parts. How do we leverage, <clears throat> I guess we're always leveraging neuroplasticity, whether we realize it or not, whether it's you know for betterment or detriment, but how do we start to gain a, um, how do we leverage neuroplasticity to our advantage and, and what is neuroplasticity in relation to pain from your, your experience? Yeah, so, so let me answer the first one, the second question first and then work the other way around. In our brain, we have a representation of our body. There's a right hand, there's a left hand, the whole body is represented. And these maps, all we have to know is they're dynamically maintained. If you use a body part a lot, the map is actually pretty sharp and crisp. If I showed you a picture of my hand, you'll tell me the hand is not a foot. So it's a right hand, not a left hand. So you, you use that mapping. To, it's the same map, by the way, that if I ask you to close your eyes and touch your nose with your index finger, you will do, because that map is still alive. When we develop pain and we don't move much, or we're afraid of pain or our hand is in a cast or a brace, that map isn't exercised. These maps need to be exercised all the time. And when they don't get exercised, they become a little blurry, if you will, and we call it smudging. And when the brain gets worried about your hand and your foot, and I'm paraphrasing, it'll turn up the dial on the alarm system, making you more sensitive, more sensitive, more sensitive. So now things like light touch could actually become uncomfortable. We then do a series of techniques to actually sharpen this map. 
to the, did you know what's left and right? That this is a hand, not a foot. And it, at map, when a map gets sharper, it eases the pain. And what does this mean to me and you? CRPS is a very rare condition in the big scheme of things, Erin. But we've now taken this kind of mapping training to more, com more common conditions like back pain, knee replacements, rotator cuff injuries, which people are coming in by the millions for treatment. And when those maps sharpen post-operatively, when they're afraid to move, it dampens it down. We can now take school kids. We did a study in, in Wyoming where we took school kids before basketball season, measured some of these measurements, right? How quickly can you pick up left and right? How accurate are you? And we could almost predict to the kid who's going to sprain their ankle this year, right? So there's all these opportunities that we can see who's going to do well in operations, who should we be careful with doing operations, who should we do more strengthening conditioning before they start the basketball season or whatever. So there are some opportunities and because the map, the brain is plastic, we can retrain it. And I think that's where the term is probably, and by the way, Lorimer will probably talk more about bioplasticity than neuroplasticity because there's plasticity to the immune system, the biology, everything's plastic in our system. You're not stuck that way. That's not the way you are. I love the concept and, and the term smudge because I feel like that, like it's, we all have a different, um, <clears throat> I don't know, a, a relationship to our, our sense, our, like a sensory motor relationship, you know, and, and some people have more, it's like a person that understands astronomy. They can look up into the stars and see, oh, I see black holes and I see Jupiter and Saturn. And I see like, you know, I can feel gravity and 9.8 meter per second. I have this, it's like elaborate story just by looking out into space. We have that with our, you know, our, our plantar fascia and we have that with our, you know, the orientation of our pelvis and our pelvic floor and our vocal cords and a person that can dance or a yogi or has some type of breath control. And those are all mapped in the, in the, in the brain. And there's, there's, there's portions, you know, of, of our, our motor system that can have this, like to use that language, like a, like a smudge of sorts. And I think it's a really interesting, and I might be misrepresenting, misspeaking for things, so please correct me. But the, the the process of filling in that information in there, it's almost like a blank page in a book. And the book isn't complete, is maybe perhaps an analogy. So the book doesn't really make sense. It feels confusing to read the book. It feels confusing to be in the body in a way. Like the, the process of filling in those spaces. There's a book that I know that you, you've, you're you a fan of um, called The Brain That Changes Itself by Norman Deutsch. That it just gets into like countless examples of how plastic, you know, this this brain really is, and and the level of of change that we're capable of. Can we talk a little bit about the process of starting to fill in some of those smudges? That's probably not the right usage of language. Please correct all of that for whatever wherever misrepresentations were there. No, I love your analogy. I love the idea that the book is never written. Right, every day is a new day for us, and our brain, your brain, has one hundred and twenty-five thousand miles of wiring gets replaced every three weeks. So this thing reinvents itself every split second of every day. Um, again, Aaron, I can only speak for the area I'm involved in, but um, you know, we know that movement, um, just keeping moving, you know, movement uh, is a critical element of it. The minute you stop moving, the maps don't get exercised, and they do smudge. That is motor and sympathetic, uh, sorry, uh, sensory maps as well as immune maps. So they constantly. So we're very keen on the idea of movement, getting people moving, getting people moving. Tactile, getting tactile information into a touch is important. Um, you know, it's just the idea of things like walking barefoot, getting sensory feed into into the system. Uh, we, we, we've done so many things about getting rid of these things, right? We have stiff, rigid orthotics. I mean, older patients, we're getting ready to do a study in a nursing home where older adults are put in stiff, rigid orthopedic shoes. They don't know where their feet are. 
And so if you take those out and just having them start walking barefoot and say, wow, there's my foot, there's my big toe, there's my little toe, and it starts feeding. So the more sensory feed we can put into the system through movement, touch, sensory experiences, um, those kind of things I think are absolutely vital. We're doing a lot of that in our research right now to try and alter these maps as well. I would presume that in a lot of ways, Homo sapiens are at a all-time low of sensory input. There's a sensory deficit, whereas you know, forever in our our ancestry, we'd be exposed to varied temperatures and varied light cycles and threats and you know different ranges of motion and you know different textures on our feet and 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 such. What we've done uh, in the last you know whatever technological history or agricultural industrial whatever we've kind of placed ourselves into these flat planes and most of the information relationship that we have comes from these flat you know cell phone blue lit screens and it's just everything's kind of the same texture it's just flat and you know whatever it's just flat i do, do you think there could be anything to that like the removal or like a sensory deficit of sorts that could be contributing to the experience that we're that perhaps some people are having with pain i don't think it's lost on us that not many people are food and those kind. i mean that yes i'm with you i just tend to don't i tend to not look at the world that way i mean i tend to look at more that we're changing um you know when we mention when we talk about cell phones we talk about tablets tvs whatever i think we're getting enormous amount of in, information but just different without getting you know obviously cognitive and screens and all that kind of stuff could it be that 50 100 years from now when we do these brain scans that the maps have altered so much and they've adapted to screens and computers and stuff and the legs are smaller because we don't walk barefoot or whatever. I, I don't know. This is the, I, I'll find out like you maybe one day. Um, I, I'm with you. If you just want to talk about specifically like things like, you know, um, yes, we, we have some sensory deficits. Um, it's intriguing because with kids now, there's all these sensory toys. It's making a big comeback. I mean, I should have invested in that thing because suddenly it's a new hot thing. People have all these sensory um you may be very much onto it, absolutely. I just wonder if things are just changing, right? We've gone from a certain type of living into a different kind of living, and I don't, and I don't like the idea of saying always it's a bad thing. It's just, it's different. It's just different. What kind of um, practices do you engage in with yourself to keep your body? Do you have much pain in your body? <laughs> I'm an old guy, so yeah, of course I have pain. Oh now, wait, I'm hold on, back up. Was that a story that would be that would like a self-fulfilling prophecy? The concept that I'm an old guy, so of course I have pain? No. <laughs> no. I was just going to see if you're paying attention. No. I, um, I mean, I'm, I'm no different than anybody else. I mean, by the way, you're going to talk to Lorimer. There was a, a Lorimer had a discussion, a blog years ago, and he had horrific pain and the whole world had a go at him because they said, wait a minute, you Mr. Super Pain Guy. If you know so much about pain, how come you have pain? Because if, if you understand pain, it's not that simple. So yes, I have pain these days. I have pain and whatever. But one of the things I do revel in is the fact of how I was trained by my parents and my upbringing. Um, strong coping skills, ways to deal with it. I'm, I'm way more task-driven than pain-driven, uh, meaning I got to get it done. I, those kind of things. So um, yeah, I have those as well. Um, when I have pain, um, I would do what everybody else does. I slow down a little bit, take care of myself. Uh, avoid some activity for a little while, but I keep moving, focusing on where I need to go and those kind of things. But um, I would definitely go in more in behavioral realm in this regard. I'm not genetically gifted to not have pain or have less pain than other people know. I just have learned very good coping skills. And this is, by the way, pre 
science, pre-PhD, pre-studies. This is just dad telling me, suck it up. We got to keep going. We got things to do on the farm, right? And playing rugby with his notepads and helmets. And so I, I've had, I was very privileged to learn really good experiences with Peyton in my life. Yeah, I, I feel like I've had the experience. I feel like sometimes in my life, if I am really engaged with life, it's almost like I don't have time for pain or I don't have time to get sick. You know, like have you ever had that that experience in a, in a way where it's kind of like, like, yeah, things can happen, but like, I just, I don't have space for that right now. And the behavioral psychologist would say, you, you're just very task goal oriented. And that, that is actually part of it though, Ellen, because people that migrate towards a pain side become very obsessed and focused on the pain. It takes that much of the, the space people like yourself me and i'm not i don't want anybody in pain today to think that oh great yeah you know these guys are this no it pain is horrible it's a terrible thing for people but but if you are focused on goals getting to where you need to go those things they tend to do way better and that's what the models are showing us by far yes is there is there anything that you feel like when when you do interviews with people like this is there any topics or directions that you would like to go that aren't touched on is there anything that's like kind of like, oh, like I'd like to talk about this this more, but people don't really ask about it? No, they always go the same way. I mean, it's, 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 it doesn't, I'm, I'm an open book. I, have, I can go to any well, what's, what's surprising? What's surprising to you? <clears throat> I don't want to go the same way. Is there anything that's like, 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 what are you scratching your head about? What am I scratching my head about? Oh my goodness, that is a good question. Um, ooh, what am I scratching my head about? Um, I mean, I have the same problems. I mean, we. I, it's funny, yesterday I met with a big insurance carrier I um, won't mention their name on, on your, but, but basically just like, you know what, we're doing all this incredible research, all this amazing stuff, but you guys aren't, you know, paying attention. You're just more focusing on drugs and surgery and the medical route. So, so we have big fights. Um, we, we have big things we have to are aiming at with the opioid epidemic now with COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I'm, I'm not scratching my head as much as just we're trying to move in a certain direction uh, with bigger initiatives, trying to get people on board. I think with that is one of the this pain literacy, just if we can get more and more people to understand pain better and go, you know what, I got it. I can move on. Then we we are doing good things. And so I love being on podcasts and stuff where just, you know, somebody just sits and listens today and 90% of what I just said today is total garbage. And I got this guy's an idiot. But you know what, this one thing is, is really cool. And I can carry that with me. Um, that, that I think is kind of the way we're going. The more people we can touch with this new idea of Alpine. That's why Lorimer's coming on. Awesome way to go. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of you doing that. Um, but I mean, if I sit there and as soon as I'm done with you, I'm going to probably tell you, Ooh, you got this problem. No, I got a three big boards in front of me. There's a lot of problems on there. I got to try and solve with my teams. What do you think of the, the cannabinoid system, both endogenous and exogenous? So the usage of, so for one thing, just like say THC or cannabis, but then getting into psychedelics, getting into say ketamine, assisted therapy kind of venturing into those realms yeah i don't know enough about it erin though be honest with you i mean i can tell you from the, the I, i'm way more versed with the endogenous systems it's not what we talked about today than kefalons endorphins serotonin cannabinoids is part of it um i'm always going to be a fan of naturally occurring um, uh, um endogenous systems by far because that's your normal happily occurring and some people we have to boost it and that's why we you know even but we've seen unfortunately what's happened with the opioid system Right, we 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 started supplementing people with with artificial opioids, and now we're seeing this major epidemic impact uh, that we're dealing with. And so, um, I'm a scientist. We studied. I'm actually I'm working with a with a pharmacist right now on this stuff. I don't know enough to probably have a really good conversation with you about it. I'm intrigued with the idea that um, if we the the 
the more we can move away from these absolutely horrible, nasty opioids that are out there that are killing people by the hour, by the day, I'm all for it. I just want to, I just want to be always careful that we supplement one thing to another thing. So my, my claim to fame today is I'm a physical therapist. And so when a patient sits with me and they say, hey, what do you think, you know, should I, should I use cannabis, should I use, et cetera? My answer is always going to be, in a perfect world, we'd use no drugs, no surgeries, no nothing, right? I, I want you to go walk, do your stretches, take your breathing exercises, et cetera. And I will always be a bigger fan of anything natural that has very little to any side effect. Um, but again, Aaron, just for your audience and for you, uh, this isn't my area of expertise, and I'm always nervous about it because people have very strong beliefs. Either you're for it or you're against it. There's no middle road anymore, and that's kind of sad. I think we should have good conversations where the ill-informed Adrian can sit and listen to somebody teach me more about it. Like, let me find out. Let's see what we do here. But um, how about I stop there? Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> uh, all right. So the last the last piece that I, that you suggested in this like three step kind of thing that I heard you just on some other podcast talking about was was uh, calming the nervous system, which I think we've been talking about that pretty much throughout the entirety of the conversation. Um, but but can we touch on or can you touch on that a bit of like what are the the takeaway actions for a person to start calming the nervous system yeah as i mentioned earlier i mean there's, there's about 22 different things that we have now studied that we've worked in and this includes things like mindfulness um, breathing relaxation movement is actually part of both if you will for that matter um, goal setting um, now we're getting to nutrition we're getting into sleep hygiene um, and so you can take that whole list and say, and then maybe the question would be if you had to pick one or two of them, um, you know, I constantly say, if you can get a person with chronic pain to start sleeping better, quality of sleep, duration, you're halfway there. Um, I mean, I would encourage, I'm not, I don't push anything in the whatever, but I mean, if you go read Matthew Walker's book, you know, um, just stunning on sleep. I mean, I, if we can get human beings in general to sleep more, that's my students, that's my my own family doctor, my wife, my kids, you, general society, I think the world will be a better place. So sleep hygiene, we spend a lot of time on. Um, nutrition, we get resources in for people to look at those. Mindfulness is getting incredible research behind it. Um, pacing, graded exposure, there's, there's a whole list of things people can be doing to dampen that nervous system over time. Not pharmacologically, by the way. Thank you so much. I so greatly appreciate uh, yeah. you and your, your life to be able to have conversations like this. Um, where <laughs> if people want to go deeper into your work and learn more about uh, you, where, where should people go from here? I think there's, I mean, two ways. One is if they're interested in any of the stuff we teach, etc. Evidence in Motion is who I work for. Um, putting on seminars, those things. And then our publisher, um, Orthopedic Physical Therapy Products, has patient books, little booklets that people can learn more about pain. So optp.com. Um, those are the main ones that we tend to get most of our information out. So, Thank you, sir. I appreciate you. Hope you guys devoured that conversation. If you want to get access to exclusive content, including exclusive questions asked to the guests that can only be found in one place and one place alone that is over at the align community we found at alignpodcast.com slash community alignpodcast.com slash community on there you'll find content that we are posting every day uh, it's around self-care it's around strength training it's around motivation things of the sort uh, breath work mindfulness practices just stuff that uh, is blowing my mind this week. Uh, we post all that stuff over there. It can't be found anywhere else. And it's over at alignpodcast.com slash community. Appreciate you guys subscribing, sharing, doing you. I'll see you next week.